Father, we come this morning before You as our Heavenly Father. And we are so thankful for that relationship as Your kids. Lord, I pray that this would be a day where fathers in this congregation feel special and feel a new challenge as well to be all that You have called them to be. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a kid who said that Father's Day, when he was asked to give a description of it, he said, yeah, Father's Day is just like Mother's Day, only you don't spend so much. And I found uh, an interesting statistic from Illinois. There was the Bell Telephone Company gave their annual statistics and they said that on Father's Day, the long-distance calls is growing at a more rapid rate than on Mother's Day. More kids are calling their dads. The volume is increasing on Father's Day more than Mother's Day. And when they gave the statistic, they apologized for being a little bit delayed in giving the stats, but they said that in compiling the information and the billing, that they discovered that most of the calls were collect on Father's Day. So I called my father yesterday, not collect, just to tell him that I loved him and that I appreciated him and that I respected him. This is my fourth year being a dad. I love that name, Dad. It's such a great... I'm a dad. I still blow my mind at that. I'm used to calling someone else a father, but to hear a kid call me dad gives me a special feeling. I looked up this week, just for fun, in Webster's Dictionary, the term dad, and I was disappointed. It said that dad is just baby talk for father. And so I looked up father, and they said father is someone who has begotten a child. Here's a better definition of a dad by William Franklin. If he's wealthy and prominent and you stand in awe of him, call him father. If he sits in his shirt sleeves and suspenders at a ball game and picnic, call him pop. If he wheels the baby carriage and carries bundles meekly, call him papa. If he belongs to a literary circle and writes culture papers, call him Papa. (laughs) If, however, he makes a pal of you when you're good and is too wise to let you pull the wool over his loving eyes when you're not. If, moreover, you're quite sure that no other fellow you know has quite so fine a father, you may call him Dad. I am aware this morning that what we're going to cover is not for everyone here, because everyone here is not a father. I am also aware that some of you experience pain at a message like this because you are a couple who are infertile, you're unable to have children. I apologize for that in one sense, and in the other sense, it is a beautiful opportunity for you to honor your father, your dad, your heavenly father, and the guy who brought you into the world with your mother. I've had you turn to Luke 15 because beginning in verse 11 is a parable. It's usually called the parable of the prodigal son or the wayward son. 
I want to approach it from a totally different angle this morning because it's not only the parable of a prodigal son, but of a loving father. It is a portrait of a dad. It is not a complete portrait. In fact, I don't know that I would recognize a complete portrait if I saw it. I'm still very new at this business of being a dad. But this is nonetheless a portrait of a dad you could come home to. A loving father. A servant father. And there's some beautiful characteristics that make him up. It says that Jesus continued and He said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. There are some beautiful principles in the paragraphs I have just read about a servant father, a dad you can come home to. And the first one is that this father honored the choices of his children. Look down again at verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property 
between them. I do not want to belabor you with all sorts of background and history on the Jewish rights of inheritance, but there's a little background that is important. It was by Jewish law necessary that a father divide his property between his kids, and the sons always got the cream of the crop. The first son was entitled to two-thirds of the inheritance, the property. The second son, in this case, was entitled to one-third. It was distributed usually upon death. The child could not just demand his right to have his property whenever he wanted it, unless dad just for some reason wanted to do his son a favor If the father decided it was a good thing to do, and as a favor decided to do it, he could give his sons their property before his own death. He could divide it up before that time. But a child had no right to demand it. But dads, you know how kids can be sometimes. Think that they know much more than you do. Many times they may be right. But this son got that little thing in his mind. He saw the glitter of the big city, the sound of music, and he thought, man, this is a drag living out here on a farm. This is Dudsville, Dad. I want my bucks now. I want to live. I want to go for broke. His father decided that he would give him what he asked for. It was a wrong move. It was a poor choice. But what's a father to do? It says in verse 12 at the end, he divided his property between them. He honored the choice of his children. That is the mark of a servant father, by the way. It doesn't mean, don't get me wrong, that he agreed with the choice. But he honored the choice. He honored the choice probably knowing what it would bring this kid, knowing the consequences, but thinking, you know what? It's about time this kid makes this choice and learns from it. And I will honor his choice. It's tough to be a dad knowing that your kids make choices and you know much better than they do. But the choice is a wrong choice. A father was trying to describe the feeling when he was giving his third daughter to be married to a guy and she, he did not agree that she should marry this character. And he said, I am haunted by the feeling that I'm giving a million dollar Stradivarius to a gorilla in this marriage. That's how he felt. But he honored her choice. He let her make the choice. And in this case, it was a good choice. So the father divided his property between them. Dads, I know you'd like to, but you can't solve every problem your child encounters. And there comes a time, and I've learned it from my own dad, that you need to let a kid go and make his choices. Depending on his age and depending on his request, you need some wisdom. If he says, I want to play in the freeway, Dad, of course you're not going to do something that's detrimental to him. But there comes a time when you let him go and you let him make his own choice. Even now, 
little choices at the dinner table when my son will say, I don't want dinner. I'm not going to eat it. Well, Nathan, if you don't eat it, you won't get anything the rest of the night. Remember hearing that when you were a kid? Now I'm saying it. No dessert. And now's your chance to eat. If you don't want to eat, then you're going to be hungry later on. And you can't have a snack. We're going to eat the pie, but you can't have any unless you eat a little bit more. I don't want to eat. Well, do you want pie? No. All right, get down off the table. Twenty minutes later, I want pie. I'm hungry. Well, you made a choice. I'll never forget when I ran away from home the first time. (laughs) There were several times, but the first time. And I stormed in there and said, I don't like you guys. I'm running away from home. My dad smiled and said, see ya. I said, fine. And I stormed out the door. And I made it all the way around the block. Came to my senses, came home. He let me make the choice. I have a brother-in-law, the son of my wife's dad. And he decided that as he was going to school, that he would let his son make some choices now that he's getting from junior high to high school, now he's in college, that he would be able to decide where he would go to school. And one time he said, Dad, I don't want to go to Christian school next year. I want to go to regular old secular school. That's it, fine. That's your choice. I think you're old enough to make that choice. And he honored it. After that year, he said, Dad, I want to go back to the school I was at before. But his dad honored the choice. He let him make it. When you honor your, ch- your kids' choices, it shows that you accept them and you love them unconditionally. And kids, no matter what age, need acceptance. They really do. Acceptance is like a magnet. Ever wonder why certain kids get in with a bad crowd at school? I'll tell you why, I think. It's because that crowd accepts them for who they are. Brings them in and they feel at home and accepted. And a child needs to feel acceptance and he needs to feel it from dad and from mom. Getting down to just real practical stuff. I read a book and I want to share a little bit of it with you this week. If you're wondering, how do I practically do this? Tim Hansel in his book said, One of the most important skills your children will ever learn is how to make good decisions. Have a discussion tonight and frequently on what it takes to make good decisions and how to be better at it. Ask your children to name three decisions they may be struggling with right now. What's involved? Talk about a pattern for decision making. Basically, there are at least three steps involved in making a decision. Tell your kids this. One, defining the decision to be made. Selecting the best options and accepting and assessing the consequences. He says, for example, the younger child can learn how to decide which of two kinds of shoes or boots are most appropriate to wear in wet or cold weather. In working with your pre-adolescent child, ages 9 to 12, you can talk about everything from deciding which clothes to wear to which TV programs to watch. Almost any situation 
with your children will lend itself to decision making. For instance, there was a father who was administering discipline to his child. He knew that he had to discipline his child. He was going to send his kid to the room. And so he let it be a decision-making process. He says, do you want to walk to your room or would you like me to carry you? He was at least bringing a choice in the matter of how that child would administer discipline within limits. Let your child know that he's unique. You don't have to congratulate them when they blow it. But don't go too far on the other direction. Honor their choices. There's something else here about this father. Look in verse 17. It says, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. The kid splits from home. We don't know how long he's out there, but uh, obviously there's no contact with mom or dad. No phone call, no letter, no camelgram. And now he's depressed. He's bankrupt. And as it so often happens, the child's thoughts go back to that warm security called home. And the first thing he thinks of, and it might seem very insignificant to you, but I see it very different. He says, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough food to eat? One of the characteristics of this father is that he was diligent in his business dealings. He notices, the son notices, Here's my dad. He has his own business. He's the boss. He has hired employees. And they're all very happy. They're all very satisfied while I'm starving to death. That is a testimony to this man's work ethic. And I just want to say, you men who are working hard to support your family, I hope you are appreciated by those around you. I really hope you are appreciated for bringing in the paycheck and putting bread on the table. I know that these days it is a fad in Christian circles to get down on the hard-working man who brings home the paycheck because he doesn't spend enough time with his kids. And while that can be true, and I've read all the statistics, 37 seconds a day the average father spends with his child. It's usually not because of his work, it's for other reasons. And that many men are workaholics and spend a lot of time at home. The other side of that is there's a lot of men out there who are working real hard and families have that hard-working dad to thank for their survival. And I think they ought to be appreciated for it. I blessed my father yesterday on the phone. He has been such a role model to me of integrity in the business world. People knew him as a man of honesty, integrity, and hard work. And happy is the family who has that kind of a guy around. It's not easy being a father. A father is one who carries pictures where his money used to be, it's been said. And I find it significant that the first thing this kid picks up on is the fact that the hired help had more than enough to eat. Keep going, dads. If you are bringing home the paycheck and you're working hard and you're bringing home 
stability financially for your family. Keep at it. Work hard. But don't stop there. Teach your children. Tell them why you work so hard. What motivates you to spend a block of time away from the home every day bringing home a paycheck? Sit down and explain to them about hard work and about how much you love them and you love mom and the reason you're working is to support them. And teach them those values. When you give them something, be careful that you restrain yourself a little bit and don't just lavish things on them without teaching them hard work for some of those things. Because we generally don't appreciate things unless we work for them. Teach your children that. Teach them responsibility at home and in the workplace. Blessed is the family who has a hard-working dad. More blessed is the family who has a hard-working dad, but who can balance out his work with his family life. Today's the day to call your dad or see him face to face and say, Dad, thanks for all the years of hard work you invested so that we could have a few nice things. Yeah, we didn't get to know you like we wish we would. And maybe you didn't give all of yourself to us, but thank you for all that you have done. I bless you. Thank you for teaching me responsibility. Let's go on. Look at verse 18. It says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. I call this approachability. Here's a father who honored the choices of his children on one hand, was diligent in business, and now when the son comes home, he's approachable. See, here's this kid. He's been out on his own. He's squandered all of the resources in the family. And he is rehearsing in his mind what it would be like if he were to show up at the door once again, knock on the door, and Dad were to open it, and he'd see his face. What would his father do? Never once does this kid hesitate or think that his dad would turn him away and not let him come home. Never once is there a hint that his dad is not approachable. He goes, I know what I'll do. I'll just go to my dad. and Spit it out. Tell him the truth. He's approachable. And so he got up and he went to his father. Your kids know you better than you think they do. They usually can predict your response. This kid knew that his dad's response would be one of love. I'm going to ask some questions and I know what the answer is. But I'll ask them anyway. Don't you want your kids to know the value of being able to come to God anytime? Wouldn't you like to impart the value system to your child that they would know that they can come to God anytime as a father boldly before His throne to receive grace to help in time of need like it says we can do with God in Hebrews? I know that the answer is yes. You want to train the child that he can call on God anytime. You never have to stay away. Then, dads, let's role model that to our children. The role model of approachability. 
Let them think when something's wrong, I know what I'll do, I'll tell Dad. And when I grew up, it was like, I know what I'll do, I'll hide this from Dad. Maybe I'll tell Mom. Maybe. As long as she doesn't tell Dad. Wouldn't it be great if the first thought was, I'll talk it over with Dad. I'll approach him. I could tell him. The very first impression that a Christian child has of God is from his father. Because he's saying, Dad, Father, as he grows up. And then you're teaching him to pray. Now when you pray, say, Father. And when he says, Father, all of those thoughts jump in his mind and he associates you somehow with God. Because you're the first model. Make sure it's a good model and it's an accurate one. I spoke to a girl a few years ago who came to this church. She said, I was so terrified of my father that when he would come home in the afternoon, often I would urinate on the steps, the back stairs that lead upstairs, as he would just enter the house. I was so terrified of him, of even being around him. Maybe that's an opposite, but are you approachable? Would your child say, like this child did? See, you can be firm with your children and still make room for failures. That's so important. Make room for the child to fail in front of you without castigating it. That's called approachability. Perhaps the greatest enemy to growth in our society is the fear people have to fail. I meet an awful lot of people who are scared to make a mistake. They're very, they're neurotic about it. The best way to overcome that is give the kid the freedom to fail at home and be approachable when he fails. Thomas Edison, it has said, failed thousands of times before he learned how to make an electric light bulb. And yet Edison never looked at those times as failures or mistakes. He just said, it was a good education. Learn to look at your child's failures. It's a good education. They are learning. And be approachable. Going on in verse 20, we see another beautiful characteristic of this father. He got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off. Let these words soak into your heart as we read them. Look at that. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I call this genuine affection and compassion. Genuine affection and compassion is one of the marks of a servant father. The dad did not hesitate when his son came up he didn't have his arms crossed, hesitate, investigate, inquisition. 
No, in fact, there was a celebration. He goes, let's have a party. He's home. My kid is home. That's all that matters. And verse 20 is so beautiful. It says he had compassion on him. In the original Greek language, it means that his vital organs were moved, which is a way of saying his heart beat quickly. He ran halfway out there to meet him. All that was important is that his son was home. I find it interesting, too, in verse 21, that dad didn't say a word to him. Where have you been? Dad listened to him first. Dad listened to his father. He could have said, don't you dare come back here. Where have you been? He just waited to see what the kid would say. And he said, Father, I have sinned. There was a repentance. And so there was an immediate turning. He listened first. It's one of the marks of affection. A servant father recognizes that he has two ears and one mouth and uses them accordingly. I'll listen more. I'll listen first. And then I'll go on. When my son was born, I held, I was the first, I got to hold him first. Came out of the womb, I didn't know if it was a boy or a girl, and they didn't tell me, they made me guess. And I was so flipped out at that point, it was very difficult for me to guess. I said, boy? And they go, good. And Lenny was a little tired at that point, so I held him in my arm, and I was like, all right. But he was a lump of flesh. He had no muscle coordination. He just kind of cried and squirmed. And I held that little lump in my arms and I caressed it and I kissed it. And as that little baby grew and I caressed it and I kissed If you would count the number of times a day you kissed your baby or toddler, you'd need a calculator. It's wonderful, the attention, the affection, the compassion that you show a child. But children grow up. They turn from toddlers into little boys and girls. They grow up through school. They go to high school. They graduate. They get out of the house. They're no longer the little child in the arms that you can caress and kiss. Yet, they still need affection. Even when they're adults, they yearn for affection like this father showed his son. Especially from dads. And dads, it's not enough just to think fond thoughts or to say fond things, but to touch your child. To touch your son. In verse 20, it says that he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The Greek language again says it more beautifully. He covered him with kisses. I don't remember growing up being very close to my father. But the last several years, we are very close. We touch, we embrace, we kiss. Been a real healing in that area. It's beautiful to experience. And children, they, they yearn for it. We're in a society that looks at that kind of emotion as being weak for a man. You know, real men don't eat quiche. Real men don't show emotion. Real men don't cry. Real men don't touch. We're isolated, strong. I think one of the greatest strengths you can demonstrate is to show your weaknesses 
and to show your emotion. I mean, God gave you guys tear ducts just like your wives. He didn't make a mistake. He gave you hands to touch like He did your wives. Let's break the mold of the American male. Let's throw it out the window. It's inaccurate. It's okay to show emotion. The result of a man not showing much emotion on either side, when he's hurting or when he's loving, is that his children, especially his sons, will grow up and not how to know how to handle struggles and difficulty very well. They never saw it modeled. And they won't know how to demonstrate real love and tender compassion because they never had it modeled. Because for some reason, that's not strong in a male. There was a doctor who took a poll of 500 college dropouts. Found it very interesting. And of all the characteristics, the number one characteristics of all of these 500 that tied them all together is that they felt a sense of isolation from their parents, especially their father. They felt like they were unable in so many areas to cope with some of the struggles they were facing. I found something I wanted to share with you written by a dad during World War II to his son. Dear son, I wish I had the power to write the thoughts wedged in my heart tonight. As I sit watching that small star and wondering where and how you are, you know, son, it's a funny thing how close a war can really bring a father who for years with pride has kept emotions deep inside. I'm sorry, son, when you were small. I let reserve build up the wall. I told you real men never cried. And it was mom who always dried your tears and smoothed your hurts away so that you soon went back to play. But son, deep down within my heart, I long to have some little part in drying that small tear-stained face. But we were men. Men don't embrace. And suddenly I found my son a full-grown man with childhood done. Tonight you're far across the sea fighting away from men like me. Well, somehow pride and what is right have changed places here tonight. I find my eyes won't stay quite dry and that men sometimes really cry. And if we stood here face to face, I'm sure, my son, we would embrace. When you show genuine affection and compassion toward your children, you are telling them that you appreciate them for who they are. Again, you might not approve what they do, but he's still your child. You might not approve of the long hair or the earring or the girl with hairdo that looks like she's been in a nuclear explosion. But you can affirm the person, the, the gal, the guy for who he is, for who she is. It lets the person know whether I approve of what you're doing or not, I still accept you and love you for who you are. That is, you are my child and that will never change. God forbid that a dad would ever say, you're not my son anymore. You're not my daughter anymore. It's your child. Finally, there's something else beautiful about this father in this story. As you go on, we find a father who did not show favoritism toward his children. A 
That's the fifth mark. He didn't show favoritism toward his children, although that was the very thing he was accused of by the elder brother. In verse 28, the older brother became angry, refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. He answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he didn't even say my brother, this son of yours. That's how moms and dads talk to each other when the child is bad. Your son broke something today, honey. He squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, and you kill the fatted calf for him. You love me more than him, dad. But the truth is, he handles it beautifully. In verse 28, it says, The father went out and pleaded with him. It was always a mark of a disgrace for a child to refuse to come in and speak to his father. If a father had to leave the house and go outside, it meant that he was humbling himself, according to Jewish custom, because a father never did that. But this father did. He humbled himself, went outside, and he pleaded with him. Not only that, but verse 30 says, My son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because the brother of yours, notice the language, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This father did not at that point become angry with the elder brother or compare the older brother and the younger brother. You know, why can't you be as good as Pete? Here he comes home repentant and here you... He didn't draw any comparisons, although his elder son did. He decided that he would love both children equally. And he spent time pleading with the older one and affirming the fact that, hey, everything I have belongs to you. There was no favoritism in this father. Whenever we compare, somebody loses. This father refused to make those comparisons. This is a dad you can come home to. This is a dad you can be proud of. This is the kind of a dad I want to be. Dads, live your life as a father so that as your kid grows up and as people say, you know, you remind me of your father, that the kid will stick out his chest, not his tongue. He'll be proud of it. That's my dad. He's a dad I can come home to. I love him, I honor him, I bless him. I want to end with one scripture. You can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Please. Paul is writing to this church and he uses the language of a dad. In the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, verse 10, he says, You are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into His kingdom and glory. Let's do it, dads. Let's encourage our children and nurture them into the kingdom of God to live holy lives unto the Lord. To be a compassionate dad, a dad 
good in the business world. Letting us make choices. Letting your children make choices. On and on and on. But especially urging them to live lives worthy of God. How about it, dads? Let's make a covenant today, all of us, that will give it by God's grace our best shot not to let those things in life pull us away from the ones who need us the most, our kids. To be diligent in business, but balance it out and be there for them. Spend more than 37 seconds a day with them. Let's throw out the myth of quality time versus quantity time. It's a cop-out. Come on. You need quantity, at least some kind, to have any kind of quality. Let's covenant together to be the fathers as this servant father was in Luke. Let's all bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, You're the perfect parent. You're a father to the fatherless. We honor You today, Lord, above everyone else. Thank You for Your unfailing love. Thank You for being an Abba Daddy to us that we can come anytime. And Lord, with that model, that example that You have, we, we follow. We make a commitment as dads to follow that. And Father, I want to pray for those fathers in this church this morning who haven't made You their Heavenly Father. I pray that they would. I know that many of their children are praying that they would even now. Make a commitment to follow Jesus. And Lord, we want to also pray just for our dads. We pray that they would feel appreciated and loved by us and that we would rise up and call them blessed. They have made mistakes even as we as parents are making today. Help us to love and forgive and encourage and say thanks. In Jesus' name, Amen.